Hi, it's Brian, your host. This episode is part two of a three-part podcast called Pre-Deliverance. If you haven't already, it might be a good idea to give part one a listen before jumping into this episode. Either way, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Part 1. Before Bluegrass, or Pre-Deliverance Wider American awareness of banjo music began with bluegrass music, and wider awareness of bluegrass music began in the 1960s and 1970s. It is probably correct to say that a huge section of the American population heard their first banjo music on TV shows like Hee Haw or in films like Deliverance. The show Hee Haw regularly featured Grandpa Jones, Stringbean Aikman, and host Roy Clark playing bluegrass-style five-string banjo. The 1972 Hicksploitation film Deliverance, directed by John Borman and based on the novel by James Dickey, featured perhaps the most famous piece of bluegrass banjo music in history, Dueling Banjos. The music in the film wasn't recorded by a Southern Appalachian musician. It was recorded by a New York-born session musician named Eric Weisberg, and was at least initially, recorded and used without permission. Dueling banjos, actually played on banjo and guitar for the film, was a cover version of a bluegrass composition for two banjos called Feudin Banjos and was written by Arthur Guitar Boogie Smith nearly two decades earlier, back in 1954. At any rate, it was during the 1970s that most non-Appalachian Americans began to use the term bluegrass music as a sort of shorthand for old-time country music, Appalachia, or hillbillies. Except bluegrass music isn't old-time music at all. In fact, it was a relatively new kind of music in the 1960s and 70s. Bluegrass music isn't traditional mountain music. It is a genre incorporating elements of old-time music, but was invented almost single-handedly by a man called William Smith Monroe in the 1940s, better known as Bill Monroe. And no, Bill Monroe didn't see his band's music as white music. He himself described bluegrass music which was named after his third band, the Bluegrass Boys, as a mixture of Scottish bagpipes and old-time fiddle music, with plenty of gospel, jazz, and blues thrown in. Monroe himself played the mandolin, and his earlier pre-Bluegrass music was firmly rooted in the string band tradition of Southern Appalachia and the Carolina Piedmont. These string band lineups could be white, black, or mixed ethnic. Most music scholars, and Bill Monroe himself, would agree that early bluegrass players borrowed ideas freely from musicians of every background. The African-American fiddle and guitar player Arnold Schultz, who played Prohibition-era liquor joints as part of Boots Fought's Hillbilly Band, is believed to have influenced Monroe and other later guitar greats, such as Merle Travis and Chad Atkins. Banjo had long been a part of Appalachian music, and the lineup of Bill Monroe's band in the early 1940s included banjo player and comic David Stringbean Aikman. Now, Aikman did stick mostly to old-school claw hammer and two-finger banjo. It would be the replacement of Aikman with a lightning-fast three-finger banjo player named Earl Scruggs in 1945, which would electrify audiences. And it is this rapid three-finger picking style which has become synonymous with bluegrass music, 
and to most non-aficionados, this style of banjo playing is also synonymous with words like white, hillbilly, or redneck. But of course the banjo didn't begin with Earl Scruggs. The banjo has its origins in various African stringed instruments brought to the Americas by people from lands up and down the west coast of Africa, from Morocco in the north to Angola in the south. Instruments similar to the banjo include the zalam, kora, goji, contigi, and ngoni, all of which include a gourd or calabash with a stretched skin drum face or resonator, strings, and a plain neck. Many claim the closest ancestor to the banjo is the acontine, mostly due to its use of melody strings and a drone string, in some ways similar to the American five-string banjo. Early blackface performers in the USA, like Joel Walker Sweeney, tried to take credit for adding this fifth drone string to the banjo, but 18th century paintings clearly show enslaved people in the American South playing an early banjo with a drone string, decades before the birth of Sweeney. The Portuguese were almost certainly the first Europeans to encounter people playing banjo-type instruments, the Portuguese having already been in North Africa since 1415, reaching the coast of Sierra Leone by 1460. Portugal would dominate world exploration and trade for most of the 1500s, her ships ranging from Indonesia to Brazil to Nova Scotia in North America. The earliest mention of a banjo-type instrument in the English language comes from a man named Richard Jobson, the commander of an expedition to the River Gambia in 1620. And unlike his countrymen simultaneously attempting to plant settlements in North America, nearly 7,000 kilometers distant, Mr. Jobson refused to engage in the purchase of slaves. This must have surprised local rulers who had been selling slaves to the Portuguese for at least 150 years. This English party of adventurers was soon run out of the region by the Portuguese. Back home, Jobson wrote of his experiences, simply describing the Gambian musical instrument without actually offering a name for it. The first known European use of an actual written word to describe such an instrument comes from the island of Martinique in the Caribbean in 1678, where it is mentioned that slaves played something called a banza at gatherings. The origins of the word banza and the later term banjo remain unclear. Some claim that it derives from the Kimbundu word mbanza, but cognate words are found describing similar instruments used throughout Africa and throughout the European colonial world. Banza, bania, bania, banjar, banjar, panja, banjil, bango, banji, banshaw are just a few such related names for the banjo. Still others believe the word is a corruption of various old European words for the lute. Bandore, badura, the lute being a precursor to the modern guitar. In other words, we're not really sure whether Europeans borrowed a word from Africa or if enslaved Africans were using a pidgin version of a word borrowed from enslavers. Whatever about the name, we know for certain that instruments ancestral to the North American banjo were already being played in the Caribbean by the mid to late 1600s. This is of course only a quick overview of the American banjo's origins. For a more in-depth understanding of the banjo's journey from Africa to America, Dina Epstein's Sinful Tunes and Spirituals, Black Folk Music to the Civil War, and various essays in Banjo Roots and Branches are a good first stop for further reading on a subject which is evolving constantly 
as new evidence comes to light. We're going to strike out in a different direction now, and maybe ask some new questions about the banjo and wider American music history, opening a conversation about American ethnicities in the process. We're going to ask how the banjo found its way into so-called white culture. By conventional wisdom and most current thinking, the story of the banjo in North American music should be a pretty simple story to tell. And it goes something like this. American colonists purchased slaves from slave traders. Some of these enslaved people arrived in American ports like Charleston, South Carolina, or Newport, Rhode Island, where they were sold at auctions and dispersed to work on plantations. There, it is postulated that a few African griots or folk musicians still remembered how to construct an approximation of a musical instrument from back home. Anglo and other Euro-Americans heard enslaved people playing these early banjo-type instruments, sat in on music sessions in order to learn how this banjar was played, and soon after began incorporating it into early blackface minstrel shows. The huge popularity of minstrel shows led to an upsurge in general interest in the banjo during the mid to late 1800s. Rural white Americans serving during the Civil War would have also come across soldiers and black laborers playing the instrument. So by around 1900, the popularity of the banjo had even reached into the farthest hills and hollers of deepest southern Appalachia. Companies such as the Consolidated Southern Railway were employing black workers during the 1870s and 1880s, laying track into places like Kentucky for the very first time. It seems entirely reasonable to expect that some of these black laborers also had banjos with them. Mountain people, many of them very old men and women, were subsequently discovered playing the banjo by ethnomusicologists, field recorders, and record company men during the early 1900s and were presumed to be playing an instrument relatively new to their communities. And that's that. A simple history told in five or six short paragraphs. But the story of America is never so simple. It's time to take this investigation off-road. Many Americans have an almost traditional hatred of taxes and tariffs. This is, and was not always, a universal attitude. It might seem unbelievable today, but some Americans once saw their tax burden as a sign of social standing. The person paying the most taxes in a small community was seen as a somebody. For some, paying taxes was a way of acting out citizenship in a way similar to voting. But, on the whole, the sheer economic freedom enjoyed by many colonial Americans during the 1700s thousands of miles away from any central authority, bred an attitude toward taxation verging on contempt. Colonial Americans on average earned far better money and paid far less taxes than people in the mother country, and they wanted to keep it that way. While most Americans today tend to frame the war for independence as a fight for freedom and liberty, many historians would include other, far more prosaic motivations. 
The British refusal to allow her American colonists to appropriate and settle indigenous lands west of Appalachia, in the Ohio Valley in particular, was causing a groundswell of discontent and violence along the frontier between squatters and indigenous peoples. American colonials were also unwilling to accept new taxation meant to offset the cost of the real First World War, a global conflict taught to American school kids as if it were a strictly local affair. This World War is known in Britain as the Seven Years' War, and it was fought in Europe, North America, the West Indies, South America, West Africa, India, and the Philippines. Because Americans tend toward the parochial view, most remember only the theatre of conflict, which took place in New England and Eastern Canada, which they call the French and Indian War. From a British perspective, it was simply outrageous that the British exchequer was expected to finance a war on multiple fronts, including the defense of the American colonies, while Americans shirked any reasonable financial burden resulting from this. Almost every attempt to recoup some of the cost of the French and Indian War was met with resistance, usually with American leaders arguing that the method of determining their tax burden and who got to determine it was improper. Whether it was excise taxes like the Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, or the Townsend Acts, the fact remains that American colonists were almost ridiculously undertaxed compared to residents of Great Britain. But the British imposition of additional trade tariffs designed to keep Britain great economically were also utter anathema to American colonists. Such tariffs interfered with the colonists' freebooting attitude to money-making and cut into colonial Americans' business profits. Note that business at the time often meant illicit trading and smuggling. If any listener out there is ever in any doubt about the widespread colonial willingness to bend the law in order to turn a fast buck, consider this. A son of Paul Revere, that icon of the American Revolution, was an erstwhile resurrection man, digging up fresh corpses in graveyards by night and illegally selling them to medical schools. Being active around midnight seems to have been common among the Revere family. This cavalier approach to commerce and American hostility to tariffs levied by the mother country ensured that vast fortunes were being made by merchants, ship owners, and smugglers. From Newfoundland to Virginia and the Carolinas, ships set sail for ports in other distant slave economies, places throughout the Caribbean and South America which were controlled by the French and Dutch, where traders were happy to dump tariff-free goods on the American market, badly undercutting Britain's mercantilist economy. This extra-legal wealth ensured that many colonial Americans had powerful ideas about the meaning of liberty when choosing to rebel against the British Parliament. What does all this stuff about war, politics, economics, taxes and smuggling have to do with old-time music or the history of the banjo? And what about the episode teaser, Hillbilly Jews and all that? Hang on. It's great to keep things as simple as possible. But no simpler, as the saying goes. There's never a river or stream which hasn't a bend or two in it. I'm your host, Brian Halpin. 
and welcome to the time before we were white. Part two, Diaspora. Those of you who listened to our very first episode about Christopher Columbus will have learned about the events of 1492. Not just the fact that Columbus made landfall in the Caribbean that year, but the fact that Spain completed its reconquest of all Moorish Muslim-controlled lands in Liberia. The fall of the Emirate of Granada put to an end the longest war in human history, the Reconquista, which lasted a mere 781 years. Ferdinand and Isabella now found themselves king and queen of Castile, Leon, Aragon, Sicily, Granada, Toledo, Valencia, Galicia, the Balearic Islands, Sevilla, Sardinia, Cordoba, Corsica, Murcia, Cain in Andalusia, also becoming rulers of the Algarve, Algeciras, Gibraltar, and the Canary Islands. Such an extensive realm needed some form of social glue to hold it together. The Catholic Church would be that glue. Christianity would be enforced as the sole state religion and used as a tool for social, administrative, and political control. Muslims and Jews were seen as an obstacle to the desired social uniformity. As they had slowly extended their control over the Iberian Peninsula, Working their way from the north down into the south, over the course of decades and centuries, the Christian crowns of Castile and Aragon had already been forcing Muslims and Jews to convert to Catholicism. In reality, these new Christians were often paying little more than public lip service to the official state religion. In 1492, it was feared that the sheer number of still-practicing Jews in Moorish Granada would cause recently converted Jews, or conversos, elsewhere in Spain, to return to their original faith. This is why one of the first acts by the triumphant Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand was the Alhambra Decree, expelling all practicing Jews from Spain. The Romani, or Gypsies of Iberia, were also viewed as problematic, and by 1499, the so-called pragmatic sanctions were being passed, demanding that Gypsies, or Gitanos, abandon the practice of transhumans and take known trades or enter the service of lords or leave the kingdom within 60 days. Muslims, Gitanos, and Jews, unwilling to bend to these strict new laws, were suddenly refugees on the move. Iberian Jews, known as Sephardic Jews or Sephardim, had lived for centuries as Jimi under various Islamic caliphates and dynasties, most, but not all of which, had been both multi-ethnic and relatively tolerant for their time. Jimi, under Muslim law, was an Arabic word referring to fellow people of the book, that is, followers of the God of Abraham. Jimi, while not equal in status to Muslims, 
were nonetheless protected citizens, free to trade and worship as they pleased. These Iberian Jews, or Sephardim, had often been educated, wealthy, and highly skilled merchants and craftspeople within pre-Reconquista Islamic society, belonging to a branch of Judaism quite unlike the often impoverished, shtetl-dwelling Ashkenazi Jews of Eastern Europe. Picture, if you will, the chaos in the aftermath of the fall of Granada, with the Alhambra decree giving Jews just four months to remove themselves and their families from Spain on pain of death. Picture the crowded port cities of Spain's Mediterranean coast, with tens of thousands of people haggling for passage abroad. It's scarcely any wonder that Columbus had Jews on board his own ships as he sailed west seeking a route to China and the East Indies, just one day after the deadline had passed for the last practicing Jews to leave Spain. Columbus was in fact expecting to meet Jewish traders and merchants in the East Indies, until a continent got in his way. Some reputable scholars even posit that Columbus himself was of Iberian Jewish extraction, merely living in exile in Genoa in Italy. Anywhere between 100,000 and 300,000 Jews and other refugees are thought to have left Spain at this time, or shortly thereafter. This was a refugee crisis which would be recognizable to peoples around the world today. Jews arrived in Sicily, where authorities forced them to move on just a year later in 1493. Many others arrived in Florence, Provence, and neighboring Portugal over the next five years. But again, most were forced to convert to Christianity or were moved on by 1498. The safest immediate destinations for these Sephardic refugees ended up being in the lands of the Ottoman Empire at the far eastern end of the Mediterranean and in the coastal cities of Mediterranean North Africa, especially in places like Morocco. Yet there remained one more opportunity for Iberian Jewry. This period of forced conversions, mass expulsions and migrations corresponded exactly with the age of European discovery. Navigators and explorers like Bartolomeo Diaz and Vasco da Gama had extended Portuguese knowledge of the seas as far as India during the last decades of the 1400s, with Pedro Alvarez Cabral reaching Brazil in 1500, just eight years after Columbus made landfall in the Caribbean. Many of the Sephardic conversos, who had felt safe for a few years in Portugal, found themselves subject to deportation. Many were sent to new Portuguese colonies off the west coast of Africa, such as the island of Sao Tome. Others were exiled to new colonies in Portuguese Brazil, where the need for colonists overrode religious considerations. The Portuguese Empire was being born, and over the next hundred years, there would be opportunities for Iberian gypsies, Jews, crypto-Jews, and conversos in virtually every trading port from North Africa to India to Indonesia to Brazil. The Catholic Inquisition, which was rooting out suspected fake Catholics on the Iberian mainland, would take many more years to extend its baleful influence and reach into these far-flung Portuguese and Spanish colonies. By the time the English got around to setting up a colony in Virginia, at Jamestown in 1607, it was fully a century since the Portuguese had first established settlements or trading colonies in both North and South America. And by the time the English were on a firmer footing in North America, following the Pequot and Poetan Wars of the mid-1600s, the Spanish had already conquered Mexico, 
explored sections of the interior of the North American continent and been in the Caribbean for over 150 years. Even the Dutch had colonies operating in North America, the Caribbean, and South America by 1630. Dutch independence from Spain and the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s and 1600s had also made the Netherlands a relatively safe destination for Sephardic Jews, a place beyond the reach of the Catholic Inquisition. This meant that Dutch colonies and Dutch business ventures were especially attractive to Jewish adventurers, immigrants, and entrepreneurs. This would also be the beginning of the Age of Piracy. Competing European powers gave licenses to privateers, allowing ships sailing under their national flag to rob and plunder the ships of rival nations. When sporadic peace treaties created fleets of unemployed privateers, many simply went rogue and became self-employed privateers also known as pirates. Being no fans of the Catholic European powers, Sephardic Jews were among the first to get on board with the robbing of Spanish shipping, often under letters of mark, licenses, issued by the Dutch. Jews like Samuel Palach, a Moroccan-born Sephardic Jew and rabbi, worked as an envoy between Morocco and the Dutch Republic and helped form an alliance against Spain and the Barbary pirates. Moshe Cohen Hanarchus, or Moses Cohen Enriquez, another Sephardic Jewish pirate, worked in tandem with Admiral Pete Hain of the Dutch West India Company, helping to rob the Spanish fleet just off Cuba in 1628. Henriquez even held his very own island off the coast of Brazil until it was finally captured by Portugal. Another Dutch Jewish explorer and pirate named Abraham Blauvelt was active mostly in Central America, especially Nicaragua. One final piece of the puzzle, which would ensure an additional measure of safety for Sephardic Jews in at least some European nations and their overseas colonies, was the decision of Oliver Cromwell's protectorate government to informally readmit Jews into England in 1656. This decision had little to do with empathy or religious tolerance. For a start, many of Cromwell's more fervent fellow English Protestants, Puritans as we know them, shared in the same messianic religious vision prevalent among many Jews at the time. These Protestants believed that the Kingdom of Israel should be restored in order to hasten the second coming of Christ while many Jews believed that their own first coming of the Messiah required the presence of Jews among all nations of the world. Many Christians and Jews still cling to these millennial messianic beliefs to this very day. But in truth, the real clincher for Cromwell was his recognition of the value of Jewish money and trade connections, in colonies and markets which were opening all over the world. So, here we are, in the mid-1600s. Portuguese Sephardic Jews and Jewish conversos are deeply involved in the economies of colonies and trading ports along the west coast of Africa, often intermarrying with local families in order to improve trade ties, including the trade in slaves. These mixed-ethnic Luso-Africans, or Lanzados, would become powerful middlemen in the transatlantic slave trade. In South America, crypto-Jews and conversos, who had already arrived in Portuguese Brazil throughout the 1500s, were slowly relocating to non-Spanish and non-Portuguese colonies in South America, where they hoped to re-Judaize their community and avoid the widening net of the Inquisition. It was Sephardic Jews from Portuguese Brazil who helped set up the sugar industry in Dutch-controlled areas of Brazil like Recife, 
as early as the 1630s. Within a generation, though, they would be on the move again, after the Dutch were forced out of Brazil by the Portuguese in 1654. Some of these Jews from Recife in northern Brazil would pop up a short time later as far away as New Amsterdam, another Dutch colony which would be renamed New York when it fell under English control just ten years later. Other Brazilian Jews would migrate to other South American colonies like Suriname, which had been contested by various colonial powers throughout the 1600s, but was securely in the hands of the English during the 1650s. Still other Jews fanned out across the Caribbean. Sephardic Jewish interpreters and traders from Spain, Portugal, and Amsterdam had been in Curaçao since the 1630s, arriving as part of a Dutch fleet which had ousted the Spanish there. Several Jewish families established a solid community in Curaçao during the 1650s, a congregation which would grow and last for centuries. The first rabbi in Willemstad, Curaçao, was Giseo de David Pardo, sharing a surname with an early explorer of Appalachia, as we will learn. Dutch Sephardim from Amsterdam had also arrived in Spanish Martinique during the early 1600s, prior to its annexation by France in 1635. More would arrive there in 1654, after the fall of Dutch Recife. Other Sephardim from Recife were welcomed to Guadeloupe in 1654. As for the Anglo-Caribbean, Spanish and Portuguese crypto-Jews, also known disparagingly as Maranos, had arrived in Barbados from Dutch Brazil, Suriname, Germany and England as early as 1628, just three years after the accidental English discovery of that island. In this case, discovery seems to be the correct term, as the island actually was uninhabited at the time. More Brazilian Jews arrived in Barbados from Dutch Recife in 1654, from French Cayenne in 1664, and from Suriname in 1674, the latter colony coming back into Dutch hands as part of the same treaty which had turned New Amsterdam over to the British. Elsewhere, in 1655, just a year before the readmission of Jews into England, the British ended 161 years of Spanish dominion in Jamaica. A small Jewish population had been on the island since 1494, usually calling themselves Portuguese and practicing their faith in secret. These so-called Portuguese gladly assisted in the English takeover of the island. This should come as no surprise, as we have already heard, Oliver Cromwell was in the process of offering full British citizenship and freedom of worship to Sephardic Jews during the 1650s. Jamaica became one of the ultimate safe spaces for Jews in the New World, with substantial communities in both Port Royal and Kingston. The Jewish population were almost always members of the slaveholding class and prospered in commodities trading and money changing, despite regular accusations of tax evasion and coin clipping. By 1720, in the very middle of the golden age of Caribbean piracy, the free population of Kingston, Jamaica, was nearly 20% Jewish. Part 3. Cryptocurrency Phew! Even my head is spinning after all that, so perhaps a quick recap is in order. 
The age of European discovery and colonization began in earnest at almost the exact same time that the Sephardic Jews and Muslims of Iberia were given a choice between conversion to Catholicism or expulsion. Many chose to convert to the Catholic faith publicly while continuing to practice their true faith in secret. Such Jewish people were known as New Christians or Conversos, and often derogatorily known as Maranos. Crypto-Muslims were usually called Moriscos. The Catholic Church began its famous Inquisition in Spain and Portugal, officially a process seeking to root out heresy in general, but very much targeting these crypto-Jews and secret Muslims. Many openly practicing Jews, Muslims, and Romani people chose to remove to places like North Africa, Italy, Greece, and lands in the Ottoman Empire. Many of the secretly Sephardic Jews chose to relocate to distant Portuguese or Spanish colonies in places like India, West Africa, and the New World. As the Protestant Reformation began to take root in Europe during the 1500s, many Jews and crypto-Jews also chose to migrate to newly Protestant nations and to the far-flung European colonies controlled by these Protestant nations, all in order to escape the reach of the Catholic Inquisition. For some reason, a reason I'll leave you to guess, most Americans are taught their history in strictly Anglo-colonial terms, as if European-American history began at Jamestown and Plymouth Rock. Americans then see everything which followed in an almost isolationist bubble, as if the colonial and frontier era was a simple story of white, mostly English-speaking settlers pushing west into a wilderness. Yet for over 200 years between the first English settlement attempt at Roanoke in 1587 and the election of the first U.S. president in 1789, Anglo-America was in fact profoundly interconnected with the colonial worlds of France, the Netherlands, Sweden, Spain, and Portugal. There were clear trade connections between places like Rhode Island and places like Curaçao. Boston during the 1600s and 1700s was an international hub for trade. Merchants from Boston traded with ports throughout the West Indies, including Cape Francois, Martinique, Guadeloupe, Eustatius, Antigua, Santa Luz, and Santa Lucia. Goods purchased in the Caribbean included commodities like molasses, rum, sugar, dry goods, and other high-value staple goods like cocoa, all the product of enslaved labor, it should be noted. Money made from the sale of these raw materials allowed the purchase of fabrics, pottery, ironmongery, and other manufactured items from Britain and other European countries. Boston merchants also imported a variety of foodstuffs such as flour, salt, grain, wheat, pork, duck, and bread from locations in the middle colonies such as New York, Philadelphia, and Maryland. South Carolina was exporting rice as far afield as Brazil, and clear connections existed between ports in South Carolina and places like Suriname. But this legal or official trade was only a fraction, a tiny part of the story. Remember how this whole off-road expedition began, with colonial Americans and their almost pathological hatred of taxes and tariffs? It is imperative to remember that Anglo-North America had no effective border or immigration controls covering its thousands of miles of coastline and tidal inlets. Even the impressive Royal Navy had little hope of controlling the innumerable pirates or illegal traders and smugglers plying these waters, 
especially during the 1600s and early 1700s. This is why a small pirate flotilla under Blackbeard was able to enforce a blockade on Charlestown Harbour in 1718, one of the most important trading ports in Anglo-America. But it wasn't just tradable goods and commodities which were being moved illegally between North America and the far-flung colonies of the Caribbean and South America. Slaves were, of course, a large part of this trade in illegal or undeclared commodities. Indigenous South American slaves, Taino and Arawak slaves from the Caribbean islands, African slaves. Finally, we must remember the illegal traders, pirates and smugglers themselves and begin to picture a world where people of every conceivable ethnicity could move with relative freedom between Europe, Africa, Asia, the East Indies, South America, the Caribbean, and North America. Spaniards and Portuguese, French Huguenot adventurers, Creoles and Mestizos, Mamelucos, South Asians. So of course Jewish people were also among the peoples entering British North America. And they weren't arriving only via British colonial holdings in places like Barbados and Jamaica. They were arriving from everywhere. By the early 1700s, Jewish people had established a foothold throughout the 13 colonies. In many cases, these people have been documented historically. A Jew named Elias Legardo arrived on the ship Abigail in Virginia Colony all the way back in 1621. A Jewish man named John Levy took out a land patent in Virginia Colony in 1648. Around the same time, merchants with trade connections in London and the Netherlands, describing themselves as Portuguese, Albino Lupo, Amaso de Torres, along with Silvedo and Manuel Rodriguez, all appear in Virginia records. These merchants were almost certainly Sephardic Jews. Other Dutch Jews, like David de Costa of New Amsterdam, were bringing tobacco north from Virginia Colony as early as 1658. James Oglethorpe, English founder of the province of Georgia, invited a contingent of Jews from the Sephardic Congregation of London into the new colony of Georgia as early as 1733. These Sephardic Jews went on to finance the transportation of a number of impoverished Ashkenazi Jews from London to Savannah. During the same century, we see the establishment of the Monsanto dynasty of Spanish Louisiana, the family which would later give its name to the controversial multinational company. Polish-born Haim Solomon was a Jewish financier to the Revolutionary Office of Finance. He also advanced money to James Madison, who would go on to serve as the fourth president of the United States. In 1775, the first Jew to hold elected office in the American colonies, Francis Salvador, took his seat in the Provincial Congress of South Carolina. A Jewish soldier from Prussia, Michael Hart, is said to have briefly entertained General George Washington himself in a cold tent at Valley Forge during the difficult winter of 1777-1778. The prayer leader of the New York Jewish community, Gershom Mendes Sexus, was invited to the inauguration of George Washington just over a decade later, in 1789. Three years later, in 1792, David de Nassi, leader of the Jewish community in Suriname in South America, a physician and slaveholder whose namesake ancestor was the first Jewish colonizer in Suriname way back in the 1660s, wrote to George Washington requesting leave to immigrate to the USA. The request was granted. Interestingly, the very first usage of the term 
Scotch-Irish in 1774 in Pennsylvania also mentions what appear to be Jewish communities. Quote, The inhabitants of Lancaster, Pennsylvania are chiefly High Dutch, Scots-Irish, some few English families, and unbelieving Israelites. Unquote. And while there were certainly actual Portuguese immigrants to America, like the famous foundling and Revolutionary War soldier Peter Francisco, there can be little doubt that the majority of American immigrants self-identifying as Portuguese during colonial times were in fact Jewish people with roots in Iberia, the Netherlands, or various Portuguese and other European colonies. We've already mentioned that Jews were active in piracy and smuggling, with networks strung across oceans from Indonesia to the Americas. We've also already mentioned that Jews were active in legitimate, or at least legal, economic activities, including commerce, business, and trade. This included the trade in slaves. This is where some clear facts need to be placed on the table. It is repeated regularly in some quarters that Jews dominated the slave trade. This is simply not true and cannot be sustained by any rigorous historical examination of the evidence. Yet there remains a perception especially among many black Americans, such as members of the Nation of Islam and others, that the Jews were particularly complicit in the Atlantic slave trade. The reason for this belief or folk memory is probably quite simple. During the 1600s and early 1700s, Jews controlled about 17% of the Caribbean trade in Dutch colonies including the trade in slaves. Mark Lee Raphael, a professor of Judaic studies at the College of William and Mary, has pointed out that the Jewish communities in Dutch colonies were sufficiently important that slave auctions, which fell on Jewish holidays, were often postponed. Between 1785 and 1816, the Dutch Caribbean colony of Curaçao changed hands between the Dutch French and British. Around half of its free population was Jewish throughout that time. For an example in North America, we can look at Newport, Rhode Island in 1772. Rhode Island had been a haven for non-Puritans since its earliest inception attracting Quakers, Presbyterians, Jews, and other people who simply preferred a life away from the neighboring Puritans. Of the 50 richest merchants in Newport just before the American Revolution, around half were slave traders. Ranked by wealth, two Sephardic Jews, Aaron Lopez and Jacob Rivera, come in at number one and six respectively, with an Ashkenazi Jew named Moses Levy, ranked 22nd. So, while three out of 25 slave traders does not equal control of the slave trade in Newport, it does show a higher representation, 12%, than might be expected based solely on the overall ratio of Jews to non-Jews in the local community with Jews at the time comprising far less than 1% of the population. But of course, many human beliefs are based as much on perception as hard statistics. After a short-lived Spanish invasion of Georgia in 1773, the year that many Jews had arrived there, a large section of this community in Georgia packed their bags in 1740-41 and moved to Charleston, South Carolina. Another reason for this move was because authorities in Georgia would not allow them, or anyone else for that matter, to hold slaves there. Georgia had been specifically founded as a province offering land to the 
worthy poor, not slaveholding elites. The Jewish presence in Charleston predated this influx by decades, going back to at least 1695, when John Archdale, the governor of South Carolina at the time, employed a Spanish-speaking Jewish interpreter to mediate discussions concerning the transport of Yamasee Indian slaves from Spanish Florida to Jamaica and Barbados. Charleston remained the heart of the Jewish community in Anglo-America right up to the 1730s, and the vast majority were slaveholders. Over a century later, most of this Jewish community would, like other slaveholders, rally to the Confederate cause. So while Jewish slave merchants never controlled a percentage of the international slave trade remotely approaching a majority of that trade, at the granular level, Jewish people were, yes, somewhat more likely to be slaveholders than the non-Jewish population. This can only have added to a perception among the black community that Jewish culture was deeply bound up with slavery and the slave trade. All of the foregoing, however, mostly relates to Jewish people who arrived in America with the financial means to form cohesive Jewish communities, often with everything which that might entail. Synagogues, kosher shops and butchers, Jewish cemeteries, etc. In other words, we have only spoken of Jewish immigrants who left a clearly Jewish documentary trail. But here's the thing. Many of the Jewish people who immigrated into Anglo-America were not documented. Many of the Jewish people who immigrated into Anglo-America did not become a part of a cohesive Jewish community. In fact, many of these less documented and non-documented Jews arrived into a social situation difficult to navigate, if not downright hostile. There were many reasons for this, which we'll go into in the final part of this three-part podcast. What is important to understand right here is that this largely undocumented Jewish presence in colonial and frontier-era America wasn't confined to eastern trading ports, towns, and cities. No, this almost forgotten Jewish presence in North America reached right into the heart of earliest frontier Appalachia. Yep, we finally can meet our hillbilly Jews. Join us next week when we show how this forgotten strand of Jewish immigration into Appalachia fed into everything from naming practices to burial customs, to DNA inheritance, to the dark people of the mountains called Melungeons, to foodways, and even had a hand in the genesis of old-time mountain music. Thank you for listening to episode 16 of Before We Were White, written and produced by me, Brian Halpin. Main theme performed this episode by Ephraim McDowell on fretless banjo and Ray Cohen on fiddle. Heartfelt thanks to all our faithful and patient patrons. Emmy, Beverly, Heather, Elisa, Cassie, Mike, James, Jeff, Patrick, Sarah, Paula, Sandy, John, Elizabeth, Kelly, 
and Tara and Pamela.